what I remember were Warner Brothers cartoons, Roadrunner, Bugs Bunny, that kind of thing. And as I watched that, my mother would make up what they were saying. She would tell me the stories. And I remember later on when I finally saw those on television, I thought, my mom's a dad burn liar. That isn't what they're saying at all. <laughs> Welcome. You're listening to Paleo Cheese Podcast, Episode 11, Part 1, with special guest Joe R. Lansdale. Welcome back. I'm Jeremiah Bannister. And I'm Chad Lutsky. And you're listening to Take Two, in fact, of Paleo Cheese Podcast, part of the Project Entertainment Network. It's the podcast that tosses film onto the old Chase Lounge to discuss and psychoanalyze and every once in a while, even to point fingers at. And Chad, today is a super, super special day, man. A day to be remembered forever. A real hallmark for our show, in fact, and for your life. Very much so, man. Today we have Mr. Joe R. Lansdale. He is an award-winning author, having practiced and even taught martial arts for over several decades, and landing him in the International and Texas Martial Arts Hall of Fame. Pleasure. The United States Martial Arts Hall of Fame. I'm always going to add that. There we go. There we go. <laughs> yeah. I would, too. It is my absolute pleasure to, for the second time, uh, <laughs> thank Joe for coming on. And, uh, yeah, thanks, Joe. Sorry for the, the mishap there. No, no, no. No problem at all. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be invited. And uh, I just wanted to say, in our, in our take one, I was telling you how much I liked what I had read of yours and that I think you're well on your way. But you also told a very interesting story about your dad. And I hope I can impose you to tell it again. Uh, yes, I will. Yeah, I was thanking uh, Joe for reading The Neon Owl and giving me a blurb for it. And again, thank you. I can, I can go through that part of it over and over again because I'm, I'm just so appreciative. <laughs> yeah, my dad, my biological father, who did not raise me, he uh, was constantly trying to get me to read, would send me books in the mail, and just didn't have interest. I wanted my famous monsters in my Fangoria, and that was about it. When I was about 18, he had a collection of short stories that had just come out, edited by uh, David Show, I think. Wow. <laughs> and my dad had read it, and he said, if you're going to read just one story, you got to read this one in here called The Night They Missed the Horror Show. It's hilarious. You're going to love it. And my dad and I were always looking for the really bad B-movies, the, the gorier the better, or the dark humor and stuff like that. So he thought this would be right up my alley. But once again, I just was not a reader. Eventually, a handful of years later, I did read Silver Screen, which happens to be my favorite collection of short stories. And Joe mentioned that that's one of his times uh, as well. And yes, the story, he was right. The story was amazing. And I mean, I loved all of those stories, but something about that, in particular, led me to start thinking kind of more like outside the box and especially with like character development and little quirks in characters and stuff. And the more I read of Joe's work, the more inspired I was to venture out into other genres when I eventually became a writer myself. You mix them too. Yeah. And, and I, <laughs> it's kind of funny because I, I knew going in, I was like, I felt like Lansdale was the, the guy carrying that flag for anybody who wanted to venture out and maybe even lose readership along the way. And my yeah. goal was to try to maintain a voice and to uh, have so that whatever I wrote in, people were like, that this is a, a Lutsky book, you know, it's a horror, but or it's right. a comedy crime thriller thing or something. And, and so that was my, that was important to me. I didn't want to get pigeonholed or anything. So that was the goal, and I have Joe to thank for that for sure. And I always wondered, like, if you were ever concerned about that, if you were ever like, well, I, people love to drive in, but now I want to do, you know, this other thing, and, and are, are people are going to, you know, is my readership going to follow along? And I think some of my publishers and editors were. Um, I mean, I wasn't, at that time, it wasn't like I was, you know, doing badly. But I wasn't doing so phenomenally that I didn't feel worth taking chances. And I think it's my nature anyway. I think I'm, a, I'm sort of a, within a, a reason, a risk taker, mm -hmm. more of a risk taker in the sense of, of creativeness, not necessarily that I'm going to you know, walk a, uh, on a high wire across a, 
you know, from one building to another, but that I am a risk taker in the sense of uh, being a writer. And you know what? You don't always succeed. And I've always said that I'd rather read an interesting failure than a bland success. And I really mean that. I also say I always write like everybody I know is dead. And then I also say, fuck the reader. Because it doesn't mean I don't care, but I can't care when I'm writing. Because then I begin to write for somebody other than myself. And I'm the only audience I truly know. I'm not one of those people who can sense what most people want and I don't want to be. And I'm not knocking anybody else who does that. But for me, uh, it has to start with me. And then when I get through, I'm like, oh, I hope they love it. But only (laughs) when it's done the way I want to do it. Right. Because when I sit down, write it. Those are my two uh, mottos is, uh, right? Like everybody, you know, is dead and fuck the reader. Yeah. There's something to be said about even in the the music world too, when you have bands that instead of copying another band, they do their own thing and they're, they're so innovative. My brother, Andrew Vax told me once, he said, uh, he said, yeah, who do you want to be Barry Manilow or Muddy Waters? And, uh, and, uh, you know, I thought, well, I don't really want to be the one of them. I want to be me, but I get his point. You know, I don't want to yeah. be Barry Manilow. I want to be Muddy Waters. I want to be the, the guy that's doing something innovative and doing something different and somebody who is, in a sense, creating. You know, I mean, when we first heard Muddy, we thought, what in the hell, man? What's going on? Or you first heard Elvis or you first heard Johnny Cash or you first heard those people at Sun Records, Jerry Lee Lewis, etc. I, You know, we were there at the birth of rock and roll. I was like a child when rock and roll became rock and roll or rockabilly. And then became rock and roll. I mean, Elvis hit his prime when I was like five or six, you know. And so I grew up on this. And I remember, I, you know, I, I was listening to Hank Williams, which I like, by the way, and Ernest yeah. Tubb, which I also like, Patsy Cline, which I adore. And then all of a sudden, don't be cruel. And I thought, what in the hell? What is this? <laughs> and then, you know, yeah. you know, Ring of Fire and with the trumpets and stuff. What is this? Now, to you guys, you grew up with it in the normal sense, but when you heard that, you thought, what the hell is going on? What is this? Mm -hmm. And it's the same way when the Beatles came along, and their early music was kind of in the same vein, but by the time they hit uh, Revolver and Sgt. Pepper and all that, you start going, wow, this isn't the same old, same old. Mm -hmm. There's something truly unique here. And when you think about it, that music has survived really well. So it's the same thing with writing. And it doesn't always have to be crazy or, or wildly innovative. It has to be, it has to, well, Mark Twain, you know, did it. Now, you're reading Mark Twain and you're going, my God, this guy's funny. And he's uh, satirical. He has these, you know, these great things to say about racial inequality. He has these great things to say about social injustice. And you learn from that. And then you have Jack London, who, you know, in his own way was quite the racist himself with like uh, Jack Johnson, the boxer, the things he said about him. But he could touch on the every man about as good as anybody. And then you read Flannery O'Connor, who just was, you know, when I read that, I go, these are my people. I know what she's talking about here. And, you know, you read all of these people and you read Hemingway and you go, you read The Killers or you read Hills Like White Elephants and you go, my God. This isn't the same old shit. This isn't Andre Norton. And no shit on Andre. She did what she did well. But you start to realize that these are, you know, you read The Great Gatsby and you go, my God, these guys are doing something that I have never imagined. Or you read Philip Jose Farmer and he's just crazy as hell. And, and I got to know Phil. And Phil, you know, he wrote these incredible stories that would take things that didn't seem to fit and find these juxtapositions that were so fascinating. So, you know, it, it's the same way music, writing, art, you know, you know, you look at uh, Van Gogh and you look at what's going on with the Impressionists and then you look at somebody like Dolly and then you look at more modern artists and, and you look at comic book artists who were, you know, my artistic heroes and, you, and, and there's something about it when it's right. And, you know, it's, it's not the type of art, it's the particular art. It's not the type of book. It doesn't mean that every science fiction, fantasy, horror, crime is going to appeal to me because it doesn't. But now and again, and, and, it, and it can vary from reader to reader, there's somebody that reaches out and yanks your dick, you know, and you go, my <laughs> God, what is this, you know? This is just amazing. But, but the thing is that, it's, you know, it, it has to be something that excites you. And when you sit down to write, it needs to be something that excites you, that makes you feel like, it's worth getting up to do, 
you know, and I don't work but about three hours a day because I'm, I'm, I get so excited that any more than that, it, it, I get diminishing returns. So I get up in the morning and it comes out of my fingers like fire. And, uh, you know, I'm, I, I just, I, I think I'm the luckiest person in the world to get to do this because I never thought that I was going to be able to do it until I was older because I thought coming from a, a poor family, you know, as I, I was saying earlier, my dad used to say, if uh, it cost a quarter to shit, we'd have to throw up. And uh, I think, I think that that's kind of where I was, you know, I wanted to be able to do this, but I thought I would end up having to go get a degree and I worked toward that for a while, but I couldn't afford it. And uh, my wife and I, when we got married, when I was 21, I'm working in the rose fields. We both are. We're working in hay fields. We're working in potato fields. And I was, we're doing what they call them, picking up pecans. They had a device that would shake a tree and drop all these pecans. And then you would pick them up and put them in the bag. I remember telling my mother, why don't they put some tarp around here? And then we could pull, she said, oh, we get paid by the pound. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> my mother and I are out there picking up pecans. So I had all of those things going and I sold this one piece I wrote with my mom, the farm journal and uh, under her name, Orita Lansdale. And um, it took about a year and a half for it to appear, but I, I was 21 when I wrote it and I started writing other articles for small farm and country life related magazines. I sold them all. And then I wanted to write short stories, which was very, you know, a different thing. But I also brought to bear not only the fact that I was a voracious reader, I probably don't tell how many books I've read by the time I was in my 20s. And I've continued and I read three to four books a week now. And I think I've also I'm reading books for my father who could not read or write. You know, he he never he learned to where he signed his name and uh, he could towards as he got older in his 50s and 60s. I was like 42 when he was 42, rather, when I was born. And he learned to read dope out the paper and maybe a comic book a little bit, but you know, you, you couldn't call him literate, but he always encouraged me. So here's this guy who couldn't read or write. So I'm reading all of those books for him as well as for myself that he never got to read. You know, he had a love for movies, especially Westerns and crime and things like that, that I got from him. So I listened and he was a great storyteller. So I started taking all of these different influences and I started realizing not immediately, but as I wrote that he, I wanted that storytelling voice that he had. I wanted that just to sit on the porch type of guy that could tell a story and I couldn't do it. I kept trying to do it, but I kept getting in my way by trying to write like other people. And I was telling earlier to you guys in the first thing is what I'm leading up to in my own rambling, uh, circuitous manner is that, um, uh, my wife uh, had a job working for Southland, which was loading lunch meat in, uh, freezer trucks. And she wore, a, um, uh, the suit that she had to wear to, you know, keep from freezing and bless her heart. And so she said, I've got this job and, uh, why don't you take three months off? Because the, the weather had turned so horrible that I couldn't go out and work in the rose fields. I couldn't do any kind of field work. I had a mule that I plowed with, and I couldn't even plow with the mule to do anything. So I was stuck. And uh, she said, well, why don't you take three months off and write? And she said, but when I come home, I expect you to have something written. And I'm scared of my wife, as I've said before. <laughs> she means business. Yeah. And uh, we've been married 47 years, you know. And this was a major thing for me because I wrote a story a day for 90 days, three months, literally 90 days. And, um, when I, when she would come home, I would have that story and I started marketing them and it took over about four years, maybe a little longer than that. I got literally a thousand rejects because as I was saying to you guys earlier is that at that time there were magazines all over the place. You go up to a, a newsstand, there'd be 20 magazines on the top rack and another 20 on this rack and another 20 on that rack and all of them bought fiction. Now I didn't always market wisely because it turned out that dog digest wasn't buying science. <laughs> and I learned it the hard way. Uh, if I'd see a magazine, I would send it because they bought fiction. And I, then I bought a writer's market, this big, big book. And I 
started looking at all of the places that bought short stories. And so I sent them out. They were all awful, but they helped me get the crap out of my system. When we moved to Nacogdoches or back to Nacogdoches, we had met there and then moved away for a while. We took them out and had a ritualistic burning. We burned all of those awful stories. Although later I found some of them and they were published in two volumes that were meant just for fans with uh, autobiographical material in between them. I say, now this is why this is a piece of shit. Or this is why this seems exciting to me. Or this has a few elements here. And uh, so, or, or as Happen Leonard would say, a few elephants. But the, the thing is, is that I begin to write by mass production. And I begin to learn how to write better by mass production. Now, at some point, that has a negative aspect. You know, even though I'm prolific, then I was amazingly prolific. And I was prolifically bad. And I learned gradually as I began to sell to uh, Mike Shane Mystery Magazine and then eventually Anthologies and Twilight Zone Magazine. Uh, by, the, by somewhere about 1983, even though I'd already been published and published quite a few stories, I'd actually ghostwritten some things for people. I suddenly said, I don't want to do this anymore because everything sounds like somebody else. It's not the story. You can tell a similar story. There's only so many stories. But I said, it's not right. And I'm, you know, I was listening, thinking about my dad and how he told stories. But I said, how would I tell my dad's stories? And that broke the ice. I began to understand how I do that. And I also was not just reading genre fiction. I read all kinds of things. And I read lots of literary fiction. You know, I, of course, I, in college, I'd been introduced to, to Faulkner and, uh, you, you know, uh, Charles Dickens and... Uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway, um, who could write some of the most beautiful goddamn prose ever. If you take a farewell to arms and read the first two or three paragraphs, you go, okay, I'm quitting. <laughs> He's that yeah. good. You, know? yeah. you may not like all this subject matter because I don't. You know, I don't like, I'm not an animal hunter and putting animals' heads on the walls. I hunted to eat when I was a kid, literally. But, uh, you know, I, I learned from reading not only genre fiction, but reading all of the literary greats. And then I, I read new novels of genre, new novels of what were considered, uh, you know, literary type books. All of that stuff was like putting it in a blender. And then I said, you know what? I'm going to throw my voice in that blender. I'm going to put everything I know. I, I grew up poor. I grew up well. I was, you know, I was well loved. I had a good home life, but I, I grew up poor and I grew up around a lot of people who didn't have a good home life. And, and I said, there's that. Then I grew up with people who I admired greatly. And I, there's that. And so you, you borrow these experiences because I had a lot of them in the um, late sixties, you know, I was in high school and I was against the war. And in the seventies I was drafted. I was, I dropped out of college when, the, when I first dropped out to be drafted, to make a statement. That's how, how, you know, fucking naive I was. And I was drafted. And uh, I was, I went and did my physical, everything was fine. I did the mental test and then I would not, I refused to be inducted. And they said, well, go home and get your stuff ready. You're, you know where you're going, I, prison, 18 months, you know. So I went home and I, I got everything in order, which really meant I just got another pair of socks and some underwear. And uh, about two weeks later, you, you go and meet the bus in Tyler, Texas, and they take me back to Dallas. And they said, how do you still refused to be inducted. I said, I do. I, and they said, you, and you won't file as a conscientious objector. I said, no, I would have fought in World War II. There may in fact be some war in which I would fight. And uh, I would fight you if you fought me. So I'm not a conscientious objector in this classic sense of you mean it. So I can't say that. He said, okay. And he said, uh, okay, go in and see our psychiatrist. And they sent me in there. I was in there about 10 minutes and they gave me a one Y and sent me home, which means unfit for military service, yeah. essentially. Yeah. And they either decided I was nuts or they threw me a bone because this was probably about 1972. And already people were beginning to see that this was winding down. And I think they thought too, that I was earnest. I didn't, uh, I didn't give them any bullshit. I didn't pretend something was wrong with me. I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't dodge. And I, I even had one of the servicemen there who would tell me, said, son, go to Canada. This isn't working at all. And I said, no, I'm not leaving. And I said, if I leave, I might never be able to come back. And I said, somehow it feels cowardly to me. 
And, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to put down anybody that made that choice. I, I know people that did and they made that sincere choice. But for me, it was not the choice I could make as uh, the man I was, you know, and that doesn't mean better. It just means who I was personally. And so um, all of a sudden, you know, I didn't have that, but I had all those experiences of dealing. I had long hair back when first thing you do is you go out long hair and somebody yells, Hey honey, do you give head? And the fight was on. And uh, there was always something like that. And uh, you know, um, cause I, I look different. And, and what's weird is I, I never, I never uh, smoked dope. I never took any kind of dope. I didn't drink alcohol, still don't, didn't smoke cigarettes, but I was socially uh, and politically very much of the, the left side. You know, I, I've always said I'm a capitalist with a small C, meaning that I'm going to make as much as I can. I think that's fine. As long as there are restrictions that keep us from being idiots. And as long as we have social uh, programs like social security and Medicare and, and things for people to go to college. And so I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm sort of that mixture. So I didn't really fit any particular concept, but because I had long hair and, uh, you know, and because there were so many rednecks where I was, um, I learned a lot about what works in martial arts, you know? <laughs> and so, um, I, but I took all of that and, and, and again, I'm being circuitous, but I'm really coming back to the very point I was trying to make was that I took all my real life experiences and put them in the work or, or at least let them be influenced by that goes from working as a janitor, working in the rose fields. I have characters, half and Leonard that worked in the rose fields. They were bouncers. Uh, you know, uh, I, I just borrowed from that. And then I had friends who worked at the chicken plant and I borrowed from them, but I started taking all of that stuff and saying, I want to hook this to a genre uh, engine, but I want all the chassis and all of the, uh, you know, the upholstery and everything to be different. I want it to be what I know from experience and what I've learned from sort of literary fiction, which is not to say that genre fiction can't do that and hasn't done that as well. But I wanted to bring characterization and style and dialogue and atmosphere. And I wanted it to be thematic sometimes. You know, sometimes it just is what it is. It's just a story. But there were other times when I wanted to bring thematics, uh, things that, that you know, anti-racism, you know, what have you. You can, so many different things would find their ways into the stories. So that's how I developed what I wrote was like I'm a magpie, I a little bit here, a little bit there. And I was always a guy too that I couldn't plot very well. And so my, I, when I first started, I would cut things out of newspapers that didn't match. They were, and I would try to find the juxtaposition between them. Something I'd kind of learned from Philip Jose Farmer, not the newspaper part, but they're using these odd ends and trying to find how they fit. And that helped me kind of get going and then I realized that was too artificial for me. And I tried doing outlines and I realized that after I wrote the outline, I was no interested, no longer interested in writing a book or yeah. the story because yeah. I'd already felt like it was there. And so I began to use the concepts of martial arts to train the subconscious. And so I would go to bed at night and I would get up the next morning. It would be there. And all of a sudden I realized, you know, you don't wait around for inspiration. This is inspiration yeah. because now you're tapping in to what we call the muse, which is you, you're the muse and you're tapping into this subconscious aspect that you have to trust because it's crazy and it's dreamlike. And you only use the conscious mind later when you, if you need to organize things to where they're more workable, but like the drive-in, for example, was a dream, you know, and I just kept dreaming it. And it wouldn't go away. So finally I got up and I said, I got to write this some bitch. And so I wrote <laughs> it and it kept rolling out every morning. And I, as soon as my feet hit the floor, I was there. And I gradually learned that I was good for three hours a day. And when my kids were little, I of course did that whenever I, I could, because I was a house dad. My wife was working at the fire department and uh, I had quit the janitor job to take care of them. And so I would write, whenever, but gradually what I did is I developed this three hour method a day. It's not written in stone, but it, it might as well be almost because I get up in the morning, I have my coffee, I go upstairs, I check my email, I look at the fan page and I got that going. And then I sit down and as soon as my fingers reach the keys and I look up, the story's there. 
And then all of a sudden I'll feel, you know, and, and a lot of times I'll I have a deal three to five pages and I'll feel that story. And sometimes I'll get three to five pages in 20 to 30 minutes and it'll be really clean. And I'll go over it, look at it. And I say, that's it. I'm through for the day. I've worked 30 minutes. And then the next day it might take me three hours to get that. And then some days I'll go in there and three hours, I get 15 pages, but it seems like it rarely ever goes over three hours. Once in a while I can uh, work in the afternoon or at night, but I don't want to because I feel happy with what I've done. And I like to leave a little gas in the tank. And if I leave, if I do work at night, it's because I'm working with somebody else on something or I'm having to work something in film. Um, so to me, it's all about this glorious excitement and finding how to be a hero every day instead of worrying about writing 20 and 30 pages a day or whole chapters or spending 10, 12 hours. I don't want to do that. I, I want to get up, and get it done, do it as well as I can humanly do it. And then it's time to, uh, you know, read and watch movies and train in martial arts. I still teach martial arts. I teach private class once a week now. Uh, so to me, it makes a better life. And I have time to hang with my wife and my dog and, you know, and, and my, my kids don't live here now, but, you know, we're real close. And I, I hear from them almost just about every day, sometimes three or four times a day. Uh, so I've just got the life I want. So, so I, I sometimes feel that someday I'm going to get up, somebody goes say, oh, wait a minute, man, you, we, we fucked up. We were talking about that other Joe Lansdale. You're, you're not the guy. So I, I feel very fortunate. And I'm sorry a, to ramble on one. You know what? Hey, you, we are extremely happy that you're rambling. <laughs> if there's anyone who's ever been allowed to ramble ever on the show, it is you. The, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you, I love so much of the stuff that you were saying. And I, I have to say this, you know, working with Chad, I've known Chad for a long time. Um, and we used to make these goofy movies and stuff. And, we, you know, I lived at his place for a little while years ago with him and his wife and stuff and, and uh, children. And so, you know, he's had a big influence on me over the years. But I'm one of those guys that for a long time, I, I was going to have an influence on a lot of people in time, I can tell you. Oh, yes. <laughs> Unquestionably. And so, you know, and I'm a testament to that, you know, because, you know, I, I've got books all around me. I got a library here. I got a little bookshelf over here I got one upstairs in our quiet room uh, that we've got that's dedicated to it and so but most of that stuff is politics science philosophy religion culture uh, anthropology stuff like this right and it wasn't until Chad and a few other people really began to influence me about um, branching out and getting into fiction but even when I did that I began uh, w with people like uh, Homer Right. Um, oh, yeah. Escalus. One of my favorites. Yes. I, I was I was so happy to hear that. You read, You said you read it like at 10 years old. And I was like, Woo. Yeah, I keep the, it under my pillow. Yeah. You know? and I, 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 yeah. One of my favorite. But, you know, Homer, Aeschylus, uh, Dante. Yeah. I, and and I, I like, yeah. of course, uh, Chesterton. So there, there are people, there, there are writers. Read a little Chesterton. A little Chesterton, yeah. And so, like, you know, yeah, so there are people that I like, but they're, they're, poetic you know a lot of a lot of this rich prose and lofty things and a lot of it's religious too you know and it wasn't until chad <laughs> that i began to really branch away from that a little bit and it was actually with his work i read i read Skullface boy and i think i, I mentioned it in one of our last shows maybe with uh, jeremy wagner uh, about how I was reading it while my wife was giving birth to our newest child <laughs> and i'm sitting there you know reading it but but as i was reading it i was still I'd, I'd still never stumbled upon uh, David Lynch, I'd st which is a big influence on me now at this point. And I hadn't heard of you. And it wasn't until he began talking to me and he said, look, he said, and I, I knew that he'd mentioned you. And he's like, he, he mentioned, he said, look, we've got, we've got Lansdale, man. He's like, I can't even believe it. And so he's just elated. I mean, he on cloud nine over this uh, because the influence. And, and as I began reading it, uh, he said, you got to read Paradise Sky. So I began reading Paradise Sky. He said, you got to read uh, all, or you got, you got to watch the documentary, right? All Hail the Popcorn King. And he said, you got, you got to watch that. So I watched it and I was so impressed. And I'm so glad for our listeners that you've expressed the, the things you've expressed because through it all, there was a sense of balance that, that you, on the one hand, uh, you're, you're writing all the time. 
on the other hand, you're only writing a, a lot, a little, right? And you do other things. Mm -hmm. You have a family life. And that's one of the, the most endearing things about that documentary. When your daughter chokes up and starts crying, I yeah, choked up. Choke. I know. I, I'm like, I don't even know these people. And I'm there crying and stuff. And, and, but you could tell, and you could tell from everyone who knew you, you could tell that you are a, a man who genuinely is trying to live that life and, and to live that, that heroic life. It's not saying there's no wrong or anything else, but to say, you know what? I, I'm a guy. I do my best with what I've got. I try to tell the stories. You're even making up, right? Like a, a rapper, you know, almost like a uh, active reparation with your father about reading yeah. and taking that upon yourself and saying, I'm reading not only for myself, but I'm reading for him. And, and I just, yeah. I thought it was so great. And, and lastly, the, the idea that the diversity of literature that you've done, right? Um, when I went through, I was so happy to learn about you in comic books. I, and I, I'll ask you maybe later, maybe off the, maybe Batman's, afterward. Batman's my man, man. <laughs> yes. It, my favorite, my favorite without a doubt. And so when I, when I found out that you'd done episodes like, uh, uh perchance to dream and read my lips, I was like, Oh my gosh. I said, this is, this is amazing. And, and even 30 days of night, you know, with Sam yeah. Keith, by the way, who has an, Ooh, I love Sam Keith. Yes. And his He's art, funny. his art is, I have a drawing, uh, back behind me somewhere of the Max that I drew. Big influences on me. So that, you know, there's a lot of these and I'm going through this, but I, I thought to myself, I said, you know, because I started reading Paradise Sky, like Chad said to do. And, and as I was doing it, number one, I could hear in your words what was influencing what I had read in the past with Chad and what was so powerful about it, that crispness, that flows that doesn't require on the loftiness of things the alliteration but simply the story the the idea we have a, we have a similar echo you know he's found his own voice but we have a similar echo right exactly that's that's what i could hear and i could say okay i can see i can see that it, there's been an effect right uh it's not a mimicry there's no mockingbird here but you can see no. that it's an awesome influence on him and it was just it was it was a really cool thing to see but to know that you had written about westerns, superheroes, right? Crazy monster type stuff, horror stuff. That you could just go across the board with this and that you had taken all of these stories. And it's not to knock anybody. I mean, I'm a Doctor Who fan. I'm a Whovian. So I like, I like genre writers that oh, are can... good at... Uh, yes, yeah, I love it. That are good at like specific things. And they may just write a lot of that. But when I can see somebody who's written a vast array and is unafraid to take that that risk, because there is a risk to that, but it's also the payout, like you were saying, of doing what you wanted to do and just going full bore. And so... Artistic integrity. Yeah. Yes. I, I think that what I was saying, too, is that it's I'd rather read a uh, interesting failure than a bland success, and I've always stood by that. Yes. You know, we mentioned that, that there's that echo in... When I was yeah. writing the uh, Neon Owl, I I became very self-conscious because as I found out after watching, after starting to write and then starting to listen to Joe talk in interviews on YouTube and stuff like that and read things that I, I found that our process was very similar, whereas yeah. by the time I'm done with something, it's usually a very, very clean yeah. you know, first draft, almost a final draft. And that's just yeah, how I'm I to do it. I also mm -hmm. don't plot. I can't stand it. I did it once because I was paid to plot this thing out and I do a, a very extensive outline. I've, I've um, done that a couple of times too earlier in my career. It, so. But it feels like it feels like work. And and like you said, that I already know what's happening, and all I am doing is filling in a blank from A to B. But I already know what's pretty much going on in between, and there's no like. There's no real like discovery along the way. There's no adventure. And the more I found out about my own process and what I was comfortable with, it was matching up with Joe's so much that it was kind of starting to creep me out, but it, it made me love him all, all the more. And then when I was writing the neon owl, I, I pantsed the whole thing. And of course you got to go back and maybe do some foreshadowing and yeah. Yeah. You nibble a little here and there. Yeah. 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 And when you're doing something that's supposed to be kind of like a whodunit, um that you're just panting yeah. in the first you always place. guess oh yeah you know maybe he should have dropped a feather here <laughs> yeah yeah 
So, but when I started it, you know, all I really wanted was I, I wanted to write a small series or, or, you know, based on the demand, maybe take it further about somebody that was kind of like um, Jim Rockford in the Rockford Files, who was, you yeah. know, just this, just by himself, who's trying to do some kind of like private investigative type stuff, but maybe not all that great at it. So maybe a, a, a lower level than, than Rockford. And so that was my idea was to write that. And then as I'm writing it, I have this character that comes in and, you know, I just, that's how I always create the characters. Just, they just come in and I, but I had this guy come in who turns out to be a, basically like this kind of like sidekick. And that wasn't my attention when that happened. And I realized that this character that I was only going to have come in for a minute, that this was going to be a duo. I was like, Oh shit, I'm writing Happen Leonard. This is not good. <laughs> because no, 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 no. I was, like, yeah. I was like, I was very, very influenced by, um, Ralph Dennis, who wrote the hard man novels and, and those things that, you know, they were sold as like these six detectives, but they weren't, you know, hard man was kind of an overweight guy. He was, and he had a friend named hump who was a black guy on a former football player who had a bad knee. And I've always said, those were my influences for half and Leonard. They're very different, but if I hadn't had that catalyst, you know, I wouldn't have found that. And, uh, you know, you, you do have to have catalysts and, and, and in many ways, you're always going to have things that are similar to other things because it's, it's impossible not to, but it's what you, and you're doing that. You're bringing yourself to these things. And if, if you do that, you're going to be fine. You're going to be safe, you know? And uh, if you write with honesty and with intent to do the best you can and to try to somehow, I think it, I think it's good to bring something of yourself to it because you'll find things in yourself that are unexpected. You'll find things that you know that you didn't realize you knew. And uh, I think that's a wonderful thing. And, and the Rockford thing, I always think about Philip Marlowe, you know, was yeah. not the world's greatest detective, but he was the world's most, I will, I, I said I was going to do this yeah. and I'm going to do this. So if you, you know, Raymond Chandler, I'm, I'm sure you, yes. you're aware of Raymond Chandler. If you haven't read yeah. Raymond Chandler, you would want to. He's certainly, uh, in my view, the greatest private eye writer of all time. But, you know, you get, influence from all of these people. I, I got influence from, from Chandler because of the smart, witty dialogue he had, but I grew up with people who talk like that. You know, it's hotter than two rats fucking in a wool sock, things like that. And you start absorbing those. And that's what I meant instead of trying to write like, uh, you know, Robert Howard or, or, or whoever, I was influenced by them in different ways. I borrowed aspects from them in different ways. I borrowed some of Howard's energy but I didn't write the same kind of stories. And I borrowed uh, from other writers here and there. I mean, you know, you could go, and I borrowed from films. Uh, Butch Casting the Sundance Kid is the other influence for Happen Leonard. Happen Leonard's Butch Casting the Sundance Kid. It's uh, D Ralph Dennis's uh, Hard Man novels. And uh, it's also um, a Huckleberry fan to some extent. I was wondering about the influence even of as i was watching uh butch cassidy and the sundance kid which was by the way the first time that i'd ever seen it and i and i grew up on westerns too my dad was you know he gun smoke and bonanza and the rifleman i mean just you know all this stuff yeah. and so like I, I grew up on that i also grew up listening to stuff like philip marlowe right the old time radio right i still do yeah. i i love it and yeah. i i love the the way that it gives kind of a tone yeah better. the big sleep and farewell my lovely are my two favorites that yes the fair farewell was what i was going to buy and i it was between uh big sleep and the long goodbye right those were the two that i was like ah you know what i said uh you know i i, I think i want the the big sleep but you're right yeah but the butch cassidy situation i was thinking as i was watching it uh and i, I watched a documentary too i think it's pbs that, that did it and it was talking oh, about I how seen... oh it's fantastic and it talks about like how they got their names and it was saying that Butch, that, you know, his name's Robert, right? And that he goes and he's... he's Leroy, uh, uh, Robert Leroy Clark Parker. Yeah. And he goes and he's working on a ranch. And he meets this, this cowboy uh, named uh, Cassidy. And Cassidy's cutting these corners and stuff. Mm -hmm. And that he takes this last name and he uses that as his. And I, and I thought, loving. And I thought, that's, you know... And he teaches him how to ride, teaches him how to shoot. And I thought... And it's, it just, it was an awesome thing. And I wondered about that. I was wondering like, you know, was that an influence in any way, you know? Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure it was, you know, and uh, Butch also was a butcher. 
for a while. And that's how I, how he became Butch because people started calling him Butch because he did butcher work. You yeah. Know? And, uh, so, you know, and then Harry Longbow became the Sundance kid and probably had never shot anybody. And yet he was considered one of the fastest guns in the West for whatever yeah. reason. Yeah. And nobody really knows. And it's probably because he could handle a gun very well. But people were uh, afraid of him. But Butch and Sundance never killed anybody until they were in Bolivia, you know, and it was, uh, they got themselves in situations where that happened. But before that, they never shot anybody. And uh, they always robbed banks in a way that they, you know, it doesn't make it good. It's still robbery, but they robbed banks in a way where they didn't put anybody's life in danger. And they had at a place with her, with them, which, you know, was played by Catherine Ross in the film. And uh, her real name might've been something else, but they knew her as Etta or Ella place. And uh, some people thought she was Sundance's cousin actually. Um, but nobody really knows not only what, who she was, but whatever happened to her, she yeah. came home and disappeared. Right. Uh, although there's, there's some evidence that, uh, that she may have actually been killed in Bolivia during a robbery mm. and that she was buried by Butch and Sundance. And that's why she never showed up again. Yeah. But then when you think about it, Butch and Sundance, uh, their whole end is somewhat vague too. And historically speaking, they don't really know exactly what happened to them, but there was two outlaws that they thought were Butch and Sundance who they had trapped and they brought out the army, you know, the military. And uh, they had a shootout in that. And eventually inside, they heard two shots. And when they went in, Butch had apparently shot Sundance and then shot himself. At least that's, that's the story. Murder-suicide, yeah. Yeah, and they buried because they were wounded so bad. And, uh, you know, they just decided, look, man, this, we're not coming out of this one. And uh, they um, buried them in the graveyard there. But years later, they dug up where they thought they were buried. They found a skull with a bullet hole in it. And they did DNA and it wasn't them. So they don't really know what happened to them. I believe they were killed there and that their bodies are probably somewhere in the cemetery. But there is enough mystery about them and about other place that it's a fascinating story. But until William Goldman wrote that screenplay, they were fairly forgotten to history. And I was a, a Western buff. I, I read a lot of nonfiction too, a lot of anthropology, a lot of history. And I had come across them in passing, but nothing much. And when I saw that movie, I said, wow, this is fascinating. And uh, I figure it's just all movie. And then when I started reading about them, I found, you know what? He nailed them. This is pretty much who they were, you know? And it was pretty, uh, pretty shocking and pretty interesting to find that uh, probably about 80% of the film is reasonably accurate. Maybe yeah, more that, than that. That's got to be, that's got to be our segue. Um, well, I wanted I'm to sure. say, I wanted to say one more thing before the segue. One thing I really have appreciated, um, not just in reading, right, but the way that you've talked this evening and the way that you talked and the people spoke of you in the documentary um, is that, and you mentioned this earlier, that, you know, you talked about contemporary controversies, right? Things that are relevant um, to the time, but yet you do it within discussion. And like, for example, you know, in, in Paradise Sky, there's a there's a, a a number, even the first 10, 12 chapters of the book, there's a, there's a powerful number of uh, discussions that go on that really cut to the chase on racism. And yet at the same time, you have this play itself out in discussions, uh, in, in one in particular, between a number of uh, black men who are soldiers, okay? And they're all together, yeah. and they're talking about it, and some of them were home they were house slaves, and some of them were out in the, in the plantation, or they were picking. Yeah. And that they're going back and forth, and that there was, I, I felt that you you did a masterful job about bringing out, on the one hand, what we've come to accept and understand as being good, right, and true, okay, about this issue. But you did it in a way that it's almost like you know how to preach without preaching or or to be political without being political. I try, yeah. Well, I, I thought you did good about it too with science. You know, that you, when you, you can tell, in fact, you can tell your your appreciation for science and your even your take on it um, in the discussions with Loving and Willie. Right, that there are these conversations taking place about looking up at the at the sky, 
right, and seeing the stars and looking at the expanse and saying you feel so minuscule, almost like Carl Sagan's small blue dot, right, that, that there's this huge world and we're this small little thing, but on the one hand, it can make someone feel meaningless, and yet on the other hand, it can make them feel as if the entire world is open up to them and that they can do that. And you were able to do that in discussion and in action, and it, and it, I just, I commend you for it, because... And I don't, I don't know if it's, you know, the way you were raised. I am, I am an atheist that is full of wonder. And so I just, I definitely impressed by it. And I, I wondered, you know, as I was thinking, because I heard you say something on the documentary too, to this effect, saying that, you know, you you live in a in a neck of the woods there in Texas. I used to live in Dallas, by the way. For, I went to school there for a little while. And, um, you know, I'd like to travel more in Texas. I, I miss it, in fact. But, you know, you live in this this neck of the woods. A lot of people go, "Why aren't you in New York? Or why aren't you in L.A.? Like, what's you got to go where the action is?" And and you said, you know, there's a lot of people there, including you mentioned your brother, and and people that you disagree with, but they'll fix a tire for you. You know, if they see you hurting, they're gonna come, and and you can see that, and you can hear that as you're reading. You can hear that come out, and I just, I, I appreciate it. I think it's actually something America needs. Right, and you know the South and. Texas, you can talk about racism, and it exists here. It really does. It's the thing that probably is the biggest scar on my soul of anything that's ever existed. And I never think, oh, it's white guilt. I think it's human guilt. It's humanistic guilt in the sense that it's a, it's a fellow man or woman that you should have some connection to and you fail to. But there are so many people here that aren't like that. There are people here like my dad was the most racist rhetoric you ever heard, but he was a kind man to everybody. And I always think about events where he uh, did things that shocked me and surprised me and that were good for people that I thought that he did not care for. Uh, and I can name a number of events, you know, but, but it's just that you, life is complex, you know, it's not that simple. It's like when you think even about the Civil War, the North did not rise up one day in self-righteous indignation and say, we've got to help the slaves. And, you know, there were a lot of things that led up to it. There were a lot of people in the North that were against emancipation. There were people in the South that were for emancipation. But it was Americans. And, and the thing is, it was one of the most horrible things that ever happened, but one of the best things that ever happened. And one of the best things that ever happened is the North won. And it changed the way black people, well, I won't say it changed the way they were treated that much, but it, trained, it changed their position as citizens gradually. It really wasn't until when I was a kid in the 60s that you really begin to see Jim Crow challenged in a way that mattered. And when uh, Johnson, who I thought was a terrible war president, but probably the greatest civil rights president after Lincoln and Grant, a lot of people don't know how much about civil rights president that U.S. Grant actually was because he's been sort of confined to the waste bin of history, which he does not deserve. But in the 60s, you begin to have the, the Civil Rights Act. And you, you had uh, this, everybody has the same opportunity ideal. That didn't mean it happened. And it didn't mean that it was achieved, you know, immediately. And in fact, as we look around now, we can tell it has yet to be achieved. But at that time, when I, when I was living in the East Texas in the 60s, you would look and you would see water fountains that said colored. You would see um, bathrooms that said colored. You would see uh, restaurants that had a slot around back where they got their food and they weren't allowed to come inside. They weren't allowed to come in the front door. And this was standard operating procedure. And so when the people will tell you, oh, we all just got along, they said, that's horseshit. And then when you see, it used to be a stairway on the out that went up through the uh, theater, uh, the side of the theater where they actually paid their tickets from the other side when the white people got through getting their tickets. And then they went upstairs. And I remember they used to say, well, they just piss upstairs. They don't, you know, and they couldn't go to the restroom. They were not allowed to go to the restroom in the show. There was no colored restroom, as they called it. They had to go across the street. So what they had to do is if they wanted to go pee, they had to quit watching the movie, lose 15 or 20 minutes to go across the street to a, I think it was like a concrete bunker looking thing that was never clean. And they could go over there and pee and then come back. So a lot of them just said, you know, fuck you, I'm peeing here. I understood that immediately. <laughs> yeah. You treat people yeah. that yeah. they're yeah. going to react uh, 
you know, over overreact, they said, but I didn't think so. I understood exactly what was going on. Don't treat me like shit. You know, you treat me like shit. I'm going to, I'm going to act like shit. And, and guess what? You deserve it. And so things like that I grew up with. And some people looked at it and saw this is where they belong. This is what they deserve. You know, they can't, they're not educated. They can't do this. Well, why, why weren't many of them educated? They weren't allowed, you know, uh, all these things. I, you know, I was there when they first had integration in our schools there and things. And so to me, that has left a mark on me that even when I'm not writing about it, I'm writing about it. Even when I'm not writing about East Texas, I'm writing about East Texas and all the things. And that means the good stuff too. I mean, I could go on all night about the good, but it's the bad that we're concerned with. And, and unfortunately, maybe we don't make enough points of that. And, and people say, you know, you're writing crime, you're writing horror, you're writing all these things. They're all so dark. And surely East Texas isn't like that. And I say, of course not. East Texas, this is, that's why they're called crime novels. That's why they're called <laughs> hey, horror novels, hey, because hey. I'm picking up on those aspects of it. If, if I wrote a romance uh, novel, and I've written some romance short stories that people are totally unaware of, if I did that, then I'm, I'm going to have a different viewpoint. I'm going to write from a, a different character's outlet. I'm going to draw from experiences that are different. And some of my books, like Lost Echoes, you know, I deal with family uh, and how it influences the kid. I deal with uh, family in the bottoms and in uh, a fine, dark line. And, and it's not all bad family. It's, it's, uh, it's people trying to do the best they can um, under difficult circumstances. And like I said, my parents, my dad was born in 1909. And think about that. Mark Twain was alive. He died the next year. Annie Oakley was alive. I think she died in the twenties or thirties. I don't remember exactly, but, and, uh, uh, White Earp was alive. I think he died in 1921. Buffalo Bill was alive. He died in 1917. Bat Masterson. He died, I think 21, 22 with his nose in the typewriter, which that makes him a hero of mine. <laughs> uh, but all of those people, his influence was totally different, you know? And so all of those stories and all of those backgrounds and all of the good and the racism and the other things that were the narrow mindedness that comes with uh, living in small groups, you know, all of that, that stuff came to me and I could embrace the negative or I could dismiss it and I dismiss it, and I could embrace the better aspects of it, and I did. Yeah. My father and mother were great family people, and I wanted to be just like them. And even though my father, as you know, his racial views were just absolutely obnoxious to hear him say things, you know, the things he would say about some of my heroes, like Muhammad Ali and stuff, and you know, and I ended up not going to the draft, just like Muhammad, uh, who probably influenced me some there, I know those things probably irked him, but I also, he's my hero because he always, you know, stood up for people, even though he might say one thing, he stood up for people that were the sort of underdogs and he was always honest and always true and always fucking fearless. And I always wanted to be like him and I've never managed to be that powerful a person in that aspect of it. But I also did not want to be a racist. I, I wanted to be able to read from my father because I always thought had he had that opportunity to read and to be educated that his life would have been different because he was a smart man. And my mother was different. She was a Martin Luther King fan and she was uh, someone who was well-read. She read everything. She had like a high school education and she finished high school when my brother was in high school. And my brother is 17 years older than me. So right now he's 84. And uh, so, you know, we had this, we, were, we were, were brothers that were raised as only children in a way, although we're close too. And the reason we're close is that my parents were able to give us that sense of family. And they went through the Great Depression. They, they had nothing. I, I remember uh, a Christmas that my brother had the same experience. And here I come along years later and the Christmas was they had no electricity in the house for the Christmas tree. So my father hooked up the batteries to the car so he could turn it on and he could charge the Christmas tree. I don't know how he, how he did it exactly, but he did the same thing with my, with my brother took the battery and did that. And we both had that kind of Christmas experience. 
which did, you know, we didn't think about it as anything special at that time. But then I look back on it and I go, yeah, you know, they were something. And, uh, you, you know, I, I was going to tell uh, briefly and I'll, I'll get it over with so we can get on to, to Butch. But my father, when I was about four or five, he got me a little dog because I was by myself all the time, which I liked. I didn't, didn't mind that. And we were, we were poor. My dad was a mechanic. He worked, uh, I think for Wanda Petroleum at that time. And he was a troubleshooter. He was a mechanic and he would go out and fix trucks when they broke down and stuff. And he got me a little dog. So I would have that dog and I love that dog. I'm an absolute dog fanatic. And, uh, that dog and I were like brothers, you know, we'd like drink out of the same bowl if my mother didn't catch us. And we, uh, we shared fleas, you know, we had a great time. And then one day, uh, up behind us, we were on a house up on a hill that looked down on a tonky tonk. And that's where the dog came from. A, a dog down there had puppies and my dad got me one. And across the street from the honky tonk was a highway. And on the other side of the highway was a drive-in theater. And this drive-in theater, I could, my mom and I, when we were there by ourselves, cause he's out, you know, doing repairs and troubleshooting on the trucks at night, we would sit at these windows. We had this long run of windows and we could see over the ton honky tonk and we could see that screen. Now we couldn't hear anything, but this screen, which probably looked about the size of maybe smaller than the screen I'm looking at right now. And we could watch cartoons. That's what I remember. Anyway, I probably watched men in suits too, but, what I remember were Warner Brothers cartoons, Roadrunner, Bugs Bunny, that kind of thing. And as I watched that, my mother would make up what they were saying. She would tell me the stories. And I remember later on when I finally saw those on television, I thought, my mom's a dad burn liar. That isn't what they're saying <laughs> at all. And, and then, but this dog I had, one day we went outside and on our, we were on the hill, but above us was, a, was another house on a, on a higher up. And there was flowers all around this house, red and white. And that's all I really remember, you know, and there was a little, a Creek. It was more of a draw, really what we call a draw, which is just water runs down through this little trickle spot. We get pretty deep sometime. And, and I, and uh, I, I had this memory uh, and I asked my mom and she kind of helped me put things together. Cause as a kid, you, you're kind of all over the place with memory. And I, I remember my dog and I going across that draw, that creek, and going up to that house. And my dog immediately started digging in those flowers. And so the door opens. A guy comes out. I don't know if it's a pipe or a stick. Picks my dog up by the hind legs, hits it in the back of the head, and throws it in the draw in the creek. So I ran home screaming. You know, my, my best buddy had been whacked in the head and thrown in the creek. So I went and told my mother and I remember my mother saying, you stay here. And she walked because you didn't have phones in your ever. You know, we occasionally had a phone, had a party line. And when we couldn't afford it, we didn't have a phone. So she had to walk to a phone and people didn't live right next door. They're like, we are out here, you know, and she had to walk a ways to get the phone call. And I don't know how long it took, but I just remember I was, my mom said, I cried so hard. I was hiccuping, you know, and, uh, at some point, I saw this black car, my dad coming. It was like Mr. Death coming yeah. up. And he pulled up in the front yard and he gets out. And my dad was uh, an extraordinarily strong man. He had wrestled and boxed in fairs by catching the rails from town to town. And he would wrestle and box in fairs for money. You know, he did that before I was born. That happened in the, in the Great Depression. So he had, he had more than a little experience with that. He was my first instructor, by the way. But he went up and he was going up that hill and he said, you stay here. I wasn't going to do that. My dog was in that creek, you know, and my dad walked up there and I followed him up there and he knocked on that guy's door. Well, that guy opened the door and my dad hit him. He didn't say a word. He just hit him. He hit him so hard it knocked him flat out. And my dad grabbed him by the ankles and swung him through those flowers. So he flattened every one of them. And then he flung that guy in the creek. And then we went down there and my dog was alive. <laughs> and he got my dog out. He carried it up. My father loved dogs too. Yeah. And so it was hard for him to do wrong for me <laughs> from that point on, you know. But those were the kind of people that I, you know, Westerns had elements of that in them. And uh, you know, but I, there was the drive-in, there was violence, there were dogs, there was out being out in the country. All of the things I've written about were right there in that day. 
every major influence of mine as you know as far as my own personality in those uh books and stories comes from that moment that's a cool story it's a great segue because talking about doing the best you can given the circumstances and good people doing bad and bad people doing good i'm like but butch cassidy Hey everybody, it's Kevin Goatee. It's Kevin Israel. And you're listening to Gutting the Sacred Cow on the Project Entertainment Network. Hey Kevin, what exactly is Gutting the Sacred Cow? Gutting the Sacred Cow is a podcast where we invite comedians and talented people every episode to come on and trash a movie that you probably love or someone you know loves. That's right, we've trashed, we, our guests, have trashed such films as Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Gone with the Wind, Grease, even Star Wars? Can you imagine the balls on that guy? Did he succeed? I cannot. Yeah, well, listen and you'll find out. But this is Kevin Goatee and Kevin Israel for Gutting the Sacred Cow.